Open your Bibles or navigate to Exodus chapter 25. We're going to look at Exodus 25, verses 23 through 40, and then we're going to jump into chapter 30. You'll see why when we get there. The topic, by the bright light of the seven-branched lampstand, the priests daily represented Israel before the Lord in the holy place. The title of our message, in a bright room with thick curtains, I am stationed. I don't know what to do now. I'm sorry. That... <laughs> Cream had a song. I remember Eric Clapton. Anybody remember Eric Clapton? Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce. They had a group called Cream. It was one of the great rock groups of all time. Arguably. <laughs> they had a song, White Room. In a white room with dark curtains by the station. Yeah. It's genius. It's absolute genius. <laughs> It's unrecognized genius, that's what it is. But anyway, let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we turn to your word, once again, Lord, an ancient text with a contemporary voice. We need your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to guide us through these things and to show us their meaning for us uh, today, right now, where we're at in our walk with you. Some of us are being blessed abundantly, Lord, others being buffeted. but you can use this text to reach all of us and even those that don't know you. I'll bet, Lord, there's one or two people here today that don't know you. We pray by your spirit, Lord, that you would convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come so that they would know the forever love of Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. It always starts at a garage sale. The lady bought a small table at a garage sale. The owner was asking $30, but settled for $25. Why not bring it to the Antiques Roadshow? Turns out it was, and I quote, a federal inlaid mahogany demolune card table made by John Seymour and Son in Boston circa 1794. You're excited already, aren't you? Lucky for her, she didn't try to refinish it or even clean it up very much with harsh chemicals. The Kino brothers couldn't contain their excitement as they estimated its value at auction to be between $200,000 to $225,000. The moral of that story, if you ever plan to have a garage sale, never watch Antiques Roadshow. One of your items is going to end up on there and you're going you're gonna to kick yourself. You may, in fact, have a Demoloon table at your house. You should check the labels. You're looking for John Seymour. But actually, I say forget John Seymour and son. The real find would be a Bezalel and a Holiab. They were chief among the skilled craftsmen who made the one-of-a-kind furniture that was placed in the Jewish tabernacle and later the temple. In Exodus chapter 31, we read this about those guys. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship. And I indeed have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahasamach, of the tribe of Dan, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and the base, 
the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons to minister as priests, the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded, they shall do. Now, these were more than furniture. They were figures of what was coming in the future. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, each article of furniture you saw in the holy place had a function. And number two, each article of furniture you saw in the holy place was a figure. Let's take a look at their functions, first of all. Morning and evening, classic devotional by Charles Spurgeon. Many of you have it either on your computer or in a hard copy. If I'm not mistaken, the title is derived from the fact that in the Jewish temple, a tabernacle and later the temple, the priests had service to perform before God each morning and each evening. They performed their daily tasks in the holy place. You know that the tabernacle consisted of two rooms, the holy place and then the holy of holies. You would enter the holy place through a veil, then there was a thick veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. In the holy of holies, there was that one article of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant with its lid, the mercy seat. We talked about that in our last study. It's where the glory of God dwelt above it in between the cherubim that were carved on it. In the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture, the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. And Moses begins by describing this table for the showbread. He says in verse 23, you shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Now, as I've told you before, the cubit is not an exact measurement. I guess it was to those who were using a particular cubit, but we don't know exactly how long it was because it's the distance between your elbow and the tip of your middle finger, so obviously it varies. It averages 18 inches, but throughout history and in different cultures, uh, it measured differently. It's no crazier than the fact that a standard two-by-four measures only one and a half inches by three and a half inches. Did you know that? Which is why you need to have board stretchers. <laughs> you ever heard of board stretcher? It's like the knot eraser or the self-driving nail or striped pay, uh, spray paint. So if you want to have fun with somebody, your, your kids, they'll love you for it. Have them help you with a building project and say, hey, we need that two by four. And they'll know it's a two by four because at the store it says two by four. And then measure it and say, oh, this two by four is only an inch and a half by three and a half. We need the board stretcher. Go into the garage and get that. Don't come back until you find it. <laughs> it happened to me. It made me the man that I am today. <laughs> it's... Uh, Interesting. Verse 24, and you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around, and you'll make a gold molding for the frame all around. You shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are on its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. When Bezalel and Aholiab were working on this stuff, I'm not sure if they whistled while they worked, but God was giving them wisdom while they worked. He was directing their gifts by his spirit. If two other craftsmen had been chosen, I'm guessing the articles of furniture would have looked different even as they still fit the general pattern. When we read these descriptions, uh, 
they give a lot of leeway in terms of what these things actually look like. And that's why if you research this later, if you go to a Bible encyclopedia or an independent book on some of this furniture, all the drawings look different because they're artists' representations of, of these few descriptions. And so they had a kind of uniqueness to them. I can't help but think of the fact that while every believer is given a spiritual gift or gifts, we each exercise them differently, and even the gifts themselves are distributed by the Holy Spirit as He sees fit, not according to our preferences. And so we get saved, the Holy Spirit uh, determines to gift us in a certain way and to make us part of a local fellowship of believers. There's an amazing sequence in the feature film Apollo 13 where ground control realizes that the three astronauts are creating too much carbon dioxide and they're running out of breathable air. They need to make a scrubber to absorb the CO2, but they've got to do it using only the materials they have on hand in their tiny lunar module that has become their lifeboat. In record time, the crew systems division put together an uh, improvised adapter using all sorts of weird random articles like a flight manual cover and suit parts and socks to make this scrubber so that they don't die uh, you know, from not having breathable air. I see in that an illustration for us. Every local church has the same tasks. They are to edify believers, build up believers in their most holy faith, and send them out to do the work of the ministry to evangelize people and make disciples of them. Those are the tasks we are to accomplish, and we do it through the gifted folks God brings and the resources he provides through them. There's no use thinking we need more people or different people with certain gifts or that we need more money or other resources in order to accomplish the tasks. We build with what is on board. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. For whatever reason, God has brought you to Calvary Hanford. Uh, And everybody would have different reasons in terms of what they feel is the Lord's leading. down to just God told me to come here to something about the ministry. But when we all come together, not, not just on a Sunday morning, but all together as the body of Christ, we're able to minister in certain ways based on the resources and the gifts that God has provided through you. And so this is what Calvary Hanford looks like based on the people that God has brought. If God brought a ton of other people, uh, it would look different. And that's why different churches look different. And that we don't all have the same building and uh, have the same liturgy and have the same emphasis or do the same outreach. And a lot of times, and I'm not necessarily opposed to it, but Christians always think, oh, if we could all just get together and do the same thing, what, how powerful that would be. Well, no, we don't need to all get together and do the same thing. God, I would argue, doesn't really want us to get together and do the same thing. We're doing unique things as a fellowship, and so are the other good fellowships in town. You know, when we could get together and do the same thing, and that's in times of evangelism, and that's what happens with a Billy Graham when he was alive, Franklin Graham, Greg Laurie, these other stadium evangelists. They are able to draw all churches together on the basis of the gospel that we all agree upon. But after that, we have a unique personality based on who God has brought. And so it's, uh, we need everyone to get on board so that we can build 
with what is on board, exercising your gift or gifts, living sacrificially each day. And that's why, again, I, I joke about it and I say it all the time, but a lot of times when people come and they say, oh, I have this idea or this move on my heart to ministry, it, yeah, it's probably you that is supposed to execute that. We're here to help you. Well, no, you got it wrong, Pastor Gene. I want you to do it. No, I got plenty to do. I want you to do it. Remember those posters, I want you? God moves on your heart and that's what he's doing. He says, hey, I want you to trust me. You don't think you have the resources? You have everything you need. Step out, church will come alongside you and you'll be ministering. And so this is what Calvary Hanford looks like because you're here. Verse 29, you shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, its bowls for pouring. You'll make them of pure gold. The dishes and pans probably held the showbread that we'll read about. The bowls were probably for the powdered frankincense which was to be spread over the loaves of showbread. The pitchers must have been vessels for wine used in the drink offerings mentioned elsewhere. Verse 30, you shall set showbread on the table before me always. Showbread is also called the bread of the presence, and it's simply called that because it, in, it is in the holy place in God's presence. So it wasn't like sourdough or some other type of bread. It was regular unleavened bread that was showbread or bread of the presence because of its location. Elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that this bread was made of fine flour baked in 12 loaves arranged in two piles of six loaves each on the table, and it was covered with frankincense, and then it was served as a memorial food offering to the Lord. The bread could only be eaten by the priests in a holy place and was set out fresh every Sabbath day. Next, Moses describes the lampstand. It says, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. Now, the word for lampstand is where we get our word menorah. This is the seven-branched menorah that we're familiar with. It's sometimes called a candlestick, but that's wrong seeing as it did not hold candles. And if my research is correct, candles hadn't really been invented yet. Its bowls held oil, and that is what it uh, used as fuel as a lamp. And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of gold. And so on each side of an upright shaft were three branches extended upward. Each branch had three almond flower-shaped cups, and the center shaft had four such cups, at the top of the center shaft and each of the six branches was a lamp. And I would have no idea how to make something like that or even what it really looks like. And so we keep reminding ourselves that this stuff, we, we have an idea of what these things look like and that's okay, but don't get settled on it because we're not sure. For example, normally uh, here in the West, we think of the menorah, the seven branch candlestick as coming out from this, uh, the stem and having a curve as it comes up. But the Jews believed that this candlestick had straight branches based on some of the wording. 
And, and so they, that's the kind of a menorah that, that they have, very different looking. And so um, every, everything's a little bit, we don't know how tall it was. It, it probably wasn't this big because it, you know, they had to tend to it and, it, and all, but uh, we usually see it about the height of a man. Uh, it's very interesting what we don't know and what we don't know encourages us that God loves our creativity and the way he's gifted us to do things for him. Now, verse 37, you shall make seven lamps for it and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. The lampstand's lamps provided the only light in the holy place. Verse 38, its wick trimmers and their tray shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. The amount of gold needed is estimated at 75 pounds. Today, that translates to $1.3 million worth of gold. So how expensive a project was this tabernacle? According to the Easton Bible Dictionary, they list all the metals used, gold and silver and copper, uh, and they say that it comes out to over $52 million. And that's not counting textiles and wood. Those items would add at least $5 million uh, so it's close to $60 million. If you adjust for inflation, well, actually, you can't. I mean, you can't go centuries back, but it's, a, it's an enormous fortune that was poured into this situation. Now, there's a movement among Christians to decry the owning of buildings and property. It's seen as wasteful of resources that could go towards the furthering of the gospel and helping others. It should be clear that God is not immediately offended by a nice facility. I mean, he had his people build him a $60 million tent. Some of you camp. And, you know, I, I'm in awe of, of fifth wheels. They're like the size of this room. They're, they're, you might as well just put a trailer hitch on the church. I mean, they're huge. I, I wouldn't even attempt to back one up. Everything would have to be forward. It, it, they're crazy. And, and they're pretty expensive. But can you imagine going to Paul Everett and saying, hey, yeah, that's really nice, but I had in mind a tent. I don't want to spend $50,000 on a trailer when I could spend $50 million on a really cool tent. Because essentially they were camping. And wherever they went, and that's why everything had poles and rings so they could carry it. And they would pack up in a certain way and they would carry it to the next location and they would unpack and they would camp. They were wilderness camping with a $50 million, $60 million tent. Now, the real issue is stewardship of the resources God provides. It, we just established a few minutes ago that churches do different things for different reasons. It may be valid for a certain group to be getting together and not have their own building. That's fine. Hey, we were there, right? 18 years. We were at the YMCA with no building at the mercy of the wise. Good thing we're not there now because they're not there now. So God seemed to know, you know, about that. So the, the issue is stewardship. What does God want us to do? What is God, I don't really worry about what he wants the other churches to do. I just, are you a valid church? You listen to God, we listen to God. Maybe he wants us to have a building. Maybe he doesn't want us to have a building. That's up to him. We want to steward those resources in a way that makes sense. Again, with the people that God has given us, we build with those that are on board. And so in any case, we want to be good stewards. There is just not one right way of doing things. There just isn't. I know we would like to think that, 
that, that the way we do things is the right way. I secretly believe that people will find that out in the end, but we, people do church differently. Every now and then I, go to, I have the opportunity to go to another church, and, and some of the things people do is kind of cool. Uh, it just wouldn't work for us because of the mix that we have, but there's not just one way of doing these things. And so see to it, verse 30, that you make them according to the pattern which you were shown on the mount. I've emphasized the freedom we have to minister before the Lord as he sees fit to gift us. But we also need to be reminded that some things are never negotiable. The Bible itself reveals certain doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith. Among them are the deity of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace, salvation through Jesus Christ alone, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, monotheism, and the trinity. If any one of those is denied or deleted, then you're just not building according to the pattern that God has given us. Now, the last piece of furniture in the holy place was the altar of incense. It isn't described in our chapter, but since it was in the holy place, I want to look at it now. So skip or scroll ahead to chapter 30. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square. Two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and the horns with pure gold. You shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Now, this is also known as the golden altar. It was similarly constructed of acacia wood overlaid with gold, with rings and poles. Its purpose was to burn incense, although we'll see that blood was also sprinkled on its horns on the special occasion. As chapter 30 continues, we get into some of the functions of these pieces of furniture. It says in verse 6, You shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seed that is over the testimony. There I will meet you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with blood, the blood of the sin offering of the atonement. Once a year, he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So reading this, you get a sense of the priests while inside the holy place at each piece of furniture. Daily, they burned sweet-smelling incense morning and evening. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest consecrated that altar by placing blood on its four corners, its four horns. Daily, they tended the lampstand. Every morning and evening, the priest had to use the utensils to keep the flames burning brightly. And weekly, they replaced the 12 loaves of bread the old bread was removed every Sabbath, eaten by the priests inside the holy place, and replenished with new loaves. Now, as Christians who enjoy the new covenant, we've been conditioned to quickly dismiss the tabernacle and its service as inferior to our superior relationship with God through Jesus Christ in this, the church age. After all, when Jesus died and exclaimed, it is finished, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Every believer now has immediate access to God and is encouraged to boldly approach the throne of God. That's all true enough, but it doesn't mean we can't linger for a moment and sense the wonder the priests must have experienced. A few months prior to this, they had been oppressed slaves holding to an oral tradition of their God, 
the God of Abraham, and surrounded by Egypt's gods and their idols. Now here they were, ministering with the very glory of God a few feet away behind a veil. It must have been thrilling. We look at, at it as restrictive because we have so much more. As we'll see, we go directly into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. But if, that's all, but if we were living at that time, imagine the thrill, the wonder of ministering in that small room and knowing that the very presence of the living God was behind that veil. It's, it's almost mine. I don't know if I could go in there. It's so amazing. We didn't get into it, but the priests wore ornate, expensive outfits. They had literally gone from rags to riches. In the holy place, tending the oil and the lamps of the lampstand, they couldn't help but think of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Oil was as much a symbol of God's Spirit to Israel as it remains for us. And that's true. Under the old covenant, the Spirit did not permanently indwell believers, but He certainly could fill them and empower them to accomplish His purposes. We, don't all, we can't think of these people, these Israelites, as having no relationship to the Holy Spirit. They did. The lampstand itself was the product of God's Spirit working through Moses, Bezalel, and Aholiab. Do we not also need to be reminded that having begun in the Spirit, we cannot make spiritual progress by yielding to our flesh? On the table were 12 loaves. They got to consume those loaves after they'd been in God's presence for a week of ministry. Loaves speak of dining together, being casual and intimate. The presence of the bread of the presence invited the priest to have fellowship with God. Do we not also need to be reminded it is to have fellowship with God that we are made new creations in Jesus Christ? For over 400 years, they had prayed to be delivered from bondage in Egypt. Now the priest could, in a sense, see those prayers in the incense that rose up to God. He heard them. He he had heard them. He did hear them. And in his eternal wisdom, God answered them in his time. We all know the pain of seemingly unanswered prayer. I would bet that all of us have some area of our life or someone else's life that is not being answered to our satisfaction. We're not getting that positive answer. Our prayers do rise before the throne, and his answers are often a mystery to us. We may receive what we consider to be a positive answer to our prayers. We may be encouraged to wait and suffer for a time like Job and then receive the answer to our prayers. Or we may be called upon to endure much suffering at all levels of our humanness like the Apostle Paul. God told the Apostle Paul no when he asked him to remove uh, severe suffering. And in fact, at the beginning of his ministry, when he was a brand new baby Christian, God had him, uh, made him aware of the fact that he would suffer much for him in his Christian life. And so God hears our prayers and he acts on them. Now these furnishings are inferior for us, but they were cutting edge at that time. They didn't go into the holy place daily or annually thinking about what a bummer it was. They were blessed beyond measure by God's progressive revelation of himself. The second thing I want to talk to you about is that each article of furniture you saw in the holy place was a figure. Do people still talk about feng shui? You ever get into feng shui? You know what that is? some kind of Chinese mumbo-jumbo that you have to arrange things at home or on stage or wherever because there are certain energies and the way the energy travels, you want to have good energy. Yeah, stay away from that kind of stuff. If you've been in my office, you see it's more kid's way than feng shui. <laughs> it's all kinds of crazy kid stuff in there. In fact, I love my, the favorite thing about my office 
is I saved the old pinata that was my face. And that just hangs there. And I love it. People come in for counseling and they keep looking at it. It's like, I don't know, what, what does this even mean? What's happening here? It's my office. It wasn't feng shui that the Lord was going in for the placement of furniture in the tabernacle. It was prefiguring. Tabernacle has been called an earthly sanctuary with a heavenly meaning. That's because what God instructed Moses to build was a copy on the earth of things in heaven. Uh, Christians in this church age no longer need any earthly replica of the heavenly tabernacle or any of its rituals. And so I encourage you, don't get sidetracked by those who teach that we as Gentiles should somehow return to our Hebrew roots. The writer to the Hebrews in the first century told Hebrews not to return to their Hebrew roots. You know, so why would we want to do that? So stay away from that kind of stuff. If I have any familiarity at all with the table of showbread, I'm a first century Jew, and Jesus comes along and says, I am the bread of life. I'm going to think of two things, the manna in the wilderness and the table of the showbread. And I'm going to at least make a connection that Jesus is saying that that bread was symbolic or prefigured him. And, and, and that's exactly the, the truth. Similarly, the lampstand prefigured Jesus as the light of the world. He's called the true light and the light and the life of men. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, if, if I'm familiar with the furniture and the tabernacle, I'm thinking, oh, he is prefigured by the menorah. Now we don't need that anymore because this light is here. In the last book of the Bible, in the Revelation, Jesus refers to the church on earth as his lampstand. So he's the light, and we're his lights. There was no other light in the tabernacle. Likewise, there is no other light in the world besides Jesus revealed through us. Table of incense represented prayer, but more than prayer because blood was sprinkled there. Thus, it prefigured Jesus' blood sacrifice on the cross whereby he becomes our advocate with the Father to continually offer prayers on our behalf as the one who ever lives to intercede for us. And so the, table, uh, the altar of incense speaks of the Messiah interceding for us. There's so much more we could say about all these articles of furniture prefiguring Christ. For example, the fact they were constructed of wood overlaid with gold speaks of Jesus as both fully man and fully God, of God as God in human flesh of his dual nature. Or the fact that looking down on this from above, if you had a drone in those days, the very articles of furniture are arranged in the pattern of a cross. These things go on and on and on. It would blow your mind. That's why I'd recommend a book to you. It's called Christ in the Tabernacle, Lewis Talbot, classic book. Uh, it, it will blow your mind at how much Jesus is prefigured in these things. First Peter 1, 10 through 12, I'll just read it to you. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. Now, that's a long way of saying that uh, the Israelites who received the, these things didn't always know everything that was going on 
But now we do. We look back and we see the symbolism and the figures and all of that. And, and of course, we're at a, a tremendous advantage. But with that advantage comes greater responsibility. There's a passage in Hebrews that would make for a fitting conclusion to this. It's Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14. The writer says, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. William MacDonald writes this. He says, the people in Old Testament days could not draw near to him. Only the high priest could approach him, and then only on one day of the year. We can go into his presence any time of the day or night. We obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. His mercy covers the things we should not have done, and his grace empowers us to do what we should do, but do not have the power to do. Forget priceless pieces of one-of-a-kind furniture. They had their place. We have in Jesus God's indescribable gift. The only real question is, have you received him? Let's pray.